Okay, great. Uh, welcome to the Enterprise Should Suck Less podcast. This is episode 19. <laughs> my name is Mike Vesfina, um, and I've got my partner here. Amit Pandey. And uh, we've got an exciting guest today. Um, we actually, when we started the, when we started our podcast, uh, we, this was the first guy we went to talk to. Uh, because, John, you've been uh, doing a lot of content in the enterprise space and uh, been doing this way longer than we have. Um, but yeah, We've got John Reed on, on the show today. Uh, John, if you want to do a quick introduction, and uh, we'll, we'll get into some questions. Cool. Well, congrats on the, the podcast venture. I'm a big fan of the format, so I'm looking forward to, to listening to all your episodes to date. Um, but for the last three years, uh, my main venture has been Diginomica, which I co-founded with four other grizzled uh, bloggers, I guess you could say. Uh, young at heart, and we're really trying to look at digital change in the enterprise, and we're trying to do it from a customer perspective. So we're trying to really look at how customers are making sense of so-called digital technology and to try to push beyond the the, the technical hype, if you will, and see um, you know what's actually getting done and what you know we we really look a lot at business results in terms of projects. So I guess you could say in a way we're a little bit of a laggard in the sense that we're trying to look at how technology can really have an impact versus just pimping every new thing that as soon as it comes out is like super cool, right? Which is, I think, a big problem in the tech press as a whole. Um, So to your point about enterprises sucking less, I think what we're trying to do is highlight the work of so-called, you know, change agents or folks with big ideas uh, and we look at startups sometimes as well, but we're trying to imbue some fresh thinking and hopefully a little bit of attitude and style into enterprise coverage. And whether we've succeeded, I would have to defer to to readers. Uh, but anyway, it's been fun so far. Yeah, I think that you know, as a, as somebody who's read and listened to some of your content, I think the uh, what we've taken away from 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 our perspective is. Uh, you have a very real tone to the whole story. Um, you know, I'm, I'm and I were based in Silicon Valley. We we see some of these com- companies running around here saying they're changing the world, and you know, <laughs> when you actually look at at what they're doing, um, yeah, it's it may be a different, a completely different story. Um, well, I think yeah. there's also I think there's also something where I know for for all of us at Diginomica, we're trying to be a lot more open and upfront about what our agendas are. So for example, we, we try to be rigorous about disclosures. It's pretty clear visiting the site, the companies that fund our website. We also write about those companies and that's pretty true throughout the enterprise. We try to be pretty open about that and let readers decide if, if what we're doing is credible or not. And to, to me, it's sort of the death of objectivity in a way. It's like, there's a huge difference in my mind between trying to be fair, which is something that I'm always trying to do, uh, and versus ob- objectivity, which I think is a sham. So what I'm always trying to do in my work is to acknowledge my agendas, what axes I have to grind. And sometimes I do have axes, and I just can't help that. But I have to, like like my love-hate thing with Facebook, where I have really strong <laughs> emotions about Facebook as a platform, and most of them are negative. Uh, but So I try to you know acknowledge that, but then also step back from from that a little bit and, and try to have a bigger view. But I think that helps readers because, you know, this notion that, oh, there's some kind of guru out there who knows it all. It's just, I think that doesn't work. And especially in the enterprise, we don't know it all. If anything, we just know a small piece. And and that's what we're trying to get across. Yeah. 
So let's talk about, um, you know, where let's look at the last sort of six to six to 12 months. You know, where, where are you, where are you seeing? Cause you guys, you guys get to, um, see a lot of different companies, a lot of situations. You interview a lot of, a lot of, uh, thought leaders and, and people in this space and in enterprise software. You know, where are you seeing the, the biggest things happening in the ne- in the last sort of, uh, year here where enterprise, you know, enterprise software is really changing? Well, I think there, the, the thing that we're seeing a little bit is that some of the things we kicked around three or four years ago and said were really cool but weren't really happening are starting to sink in a little bit more. So, for example, user experience of enterprise software, I think overall, I think you could say is getting better. Now, ha- having said that, the user experience of a lot of enterprise software is still nowhere near like what you can get certain uh, mobile apps on your smartphone. And we all know that, right? Uh, yeah. There was that, there was that famous incident a couple years ago where Robert Scoble went nuts on, I think it was Workday's expense reporting because he, he, he loved Expensify, which was a best of breed consumer type expense reporting that was so much easier. And since then, I think, the gap in, and I'm not picking on Workday at all because all the vendors in different ways are trying to tackle this. But I think I think a fair amount of that gap has been closed. And probably if you ask Scoble about that today, I think he'd probably offer a much better report on his expense solution. Um, now, having said that, you know we could get into a deeper discussion that user experience for enterprises is different. You have to take different factors into account. It's not just you know, oh, this is simple and sexy and easy. It, you have to think about data and security in a whole different way. But having said that, like to me, and this is just my take, I think I think mobile is largely responsible for enterprise getting better. And the reason is that mobile is a genuine cultural change, right? It's not a marketing thing. It's not like companies are saying, hey, try this mobile device. It's really cool. Like, like as an individual, we're all using mobile devices in a way that it's almost becoming an extension of our personality and our culture as much as we might not like that in some cases. And I think that's having a profound influence on business. And what we're starting to see is the enterprise is starting to really understand that and starting to catch up a little bit. Yeah. And I think uh, if we look at the history, um, (laughs) mobile devices were got actually jammed into the enterprise, right? Um, It it, wasn't, it wasn't, the CIO all of a sudden said, God, we really should use these phones to be more productive, right? It was, it was the, uh, you know, I think this is slightly bastardized, but the consumerization of IT, you know, is a real thing. Um, it, it happened. And, I was going to say that uh, with the mobile, what's also interesting, and, you know, John, you'll find some of our uh, mobile-focused um, episodes from the past kind of interesting on, uh, you know, just some of the ideas Mike and I have bounced around this topic, is that mobile sits right in the middle of, where the previous enterprise web it has um, made itself now available through mobile apps, but also if you look at the you know the frontier over the next couple of years with uh, the way bots and AI and augmented reality and all of that is going to get represented, mobile's still the only platform where yeah, it's still an open question on how these things will get instantiated. But mobile's almost like this um, gateway. I feel you know from. Uh, information we're trying to get out of systems which are uh, you know still crappy from 10 years ago 
and hey, what's going to be next in the future? Because whatever's after mobile is not clear yet. Well, I think that's true. The other thing, you know, I I guess I could kind of divide this discussion a little bit in terms of things that are getting traction and things that are a little on the horizon. Because like when you refer to things like AI and machine learning, I still see a lot of that as more on the horizon than bona fide use cases at the moment. But where I do think I am seeing some interesting traction is I think the enterprise has started to to really be properly infected, and I mean this in a good way, with with uh, not just user experience design, but also minimum viable product mentality and and more of an agile delivery method. And what that has to do with is a much more iterative approach to building and implementing software. And 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 that's absorbed by the vendors, but I think it's also been absorbed to some extent internally inside of companies. And I think that's pretty encouraging because. It, what it means is that you start focusing on releasing software quickly uh, without trying to build out unlimited functionality. And mobile is forcing the hand, right? Because a lot of times in mobile, simpler is better. And and then you add things as you need it from there. Uh, but with a little bit of design sensibility as well. Uh, so, so, so to me, that that's what gets really exciting is is that I think more and more IT departments are starting to realize the benefits of that approach and the beauty of that is you know, then you don't stay buried for a year building something that you bring out with great pride and the users can't stand it. You know. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because I've delivered some mobile uh, projects for enter- enterprise uh, customers and what I've found is um, it, it's been an actual, it's, a, it's been a great uh, entryway for agile development because the most of the the key stakeholders they themselves don't even know what should be on the mobile device they just said we know we right. got to do something on mobile start with something right whereas you know uh, if you start to do a you know a, a, i don't know a big um, accounting system or you know whatever some big bigger uh, system of record implementation people have a pretty good idea of what they want to see they've been seeing it, you know they've been using web applications and and enterprise systems for 20 30 years now Whereas like mobile is just, it's a brand new medium. It's also restricted. You're naturally restricted to a certain size. And, and so it's sort of, the conversation is much easier to start to say, you got to do this iterative because you guys can't even tell me all the things that you want. Now, everybody wants, oh, I want exactly what's on the desktop onto the phone. But the reality is, is like, you can't do that, right? It's only, it's, it's only got to be a subset right. of that. I totally agree. And we could throw a few other things into the mix there because I think connected to what we just, just talked about, is also the increased traction of everything from cloud to NoSQL to open source. And and it's really all about IT departments having much more powerful tools at their disposal to quickly build and collaborate on projects in a way that in the past they really couldn't. And, and that means that a lot of times you can even sandbox cool ideas without needing a lot of budgetary approval at at early points. And and when you think about it, that really goes counter to, to how things worked in the enterprise. So those are really encouraging trends. Then on the flip side, I would say there's some discouraging things. For example, I think even though you know the the omni-channel and all the promise of of using data to personalize customer experience, in my opinion, has mostly been an abject failure. Um, and and in that sense, I don't think the enterprise has caught up with its own rhetoric because uh, we just published a series by Brian Summer on how the airlines have all this data at their disposal to make for a better customer experience and they friggin squandered it and we all have miserable flying experiences as a result well i think it comes down to motivation i mean i've always said that you know with this whole big data revolution is that 
anybody that could take advantage of big data was already doing it. Um, you know, the, the, the tools have made it easier to capture the data and store it. But right. if anybody like a Walmart, if they truly, if you've got a huge data set and you can make a lot of money with that huge data set, you are probably already building something. Um, and you know, maybe it wasn't the most scalable thing and it, it, whatever. The point is there were still like data, data warehouses and, and relational database systems have been around for, you know, 30, 40 years. You can still, you know, you can store that data. And if you've got an, a, a, a commercial advantage out of that data, those people were already doing it. So, yeah. We're building on that, though. Uh, the question I'd have for John then is that you're sort of based on what you just said, Mike, and John, what you said. Looking across industries, John, how do you feel about, um, you know, the industries that have been more encouraging versus, you know, industries and not to paint the airline industry in that color, but it does seem like some industries have adopted some of the trends you mentioned more than other industries have. And people often talk about a hey, financial services is more um, uh, modernized in the enterprise than say manufacturing. But do you think that's true? Well, I, I think you could probably make some general industry breakdowns and, and, and probably say that a lot of the consumer facing industries have felt the most pressure to create better experiences, right? Because it's highly competitive when in consumer industries where there's a lot of choice, uh, that's where you see the most initiatives. But having said that, so like retail, for example, but what I point to is less industry by industry and more like if there's a channel that you can excel in, then you tend to excel in that channel. Like, so for example, Amazon does a really terrific job with, with the retail shopping experience for the most part, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why it works so well is because they built this whole ecosystem around retail, everything from all the reviews. So there's a little bit of a sense of community there, your expedited deliveries. But the funny thing is it's, it's these systems are only as good as if you can break them. So for example, you know, if you have a delivery error with Amazon, and you're in their call center, I would argue that's not going to be an exceptional experience for you, at least based on my my trips to their call center. <laughs> um, so even Amazon is vulnerable if, if the channel they're emphasizing breaks, but they have a huge advantage in the sense that, that I don't bring any in-store resentments into my experience with them. So like, you know, whereas with Walmart, you know, I bring all my memories of walking around for 30 minutes and not seeing a clerk you know, into my online experiences with them, right? And and I'm wondering why I can't pick it up at the store the next day and all that type of stuff, right? So in that regard, I think when you have one channel, a lot of times you can do really well. And, you know, Starbucks is another example where they have their store experience and their digital experience. And arguably they've done about as good a job of any company at, at integrating those those two experiences. But But even there... If you push into it, you can find flaws and issues. And what it comes down to is that we're not really at an omni-channel point where companies can really meet you on every channel with the right type of relationship. What it is is that companies are really good at one or two channels, and they trick you into thinking that's that's all that you need. That's such a brilliant uh, observation. Um, you know, two days ago, uh, the Netflix in our house uh, suddenly started showing uh, Spanish subtitles and everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
and my wife uh, was like oh my god i think we got hacked and i'm like you know i think it's possible and you know it's 10:30 in the night and i'm like i'm going to call a call center so i tried as much as i could to you know go through google and fix it myself because to your point right. the, the experience of solving these problems digitally is still um, you, you you know you don't have that uh, prefab preset memory uh, whereas right. with uh, calling up uh, anyone on the phone you're always concerned well and i think i think that's why netflix has done really well in general right because for the most part, how many times do you really have to call or troubleshoot your Netflix, right? It just, it just works. Um, yeah. 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 And, and, and so you, you get confused and thinking they've solved the customer experience, but in fact, they've, they've just been able to excel at one part of it. And that's why I think financial services institutions have a big disadvantage because the thing is that customer experience also has to incorporate things like data security and, so I don't know if you've had these experiences with with banks, but I have all the time where it's like <laughs> password changes in the middle of nowhere and call centers that are closed when you need to deal with that. And But to be fair to banks, they do have a much bigger challenge there because you're talking about secure financial transactions, which is totally – a different ball game than watching movies, you know, watching, you know, bad news bears on Friday night, you know? Yeah. And it's, uh, there's a, there's a great, I don't know if you guys have read it, the Steve Yegi uh, platform rant, but he, he basically taught, he's a, uh, was a senior guy at Amazon. And, uh, I think he, he left at one point and, um, or then he went to Google. Anyway, he's, if you Google Steve Yegi's platform rant, one of the core pieces of his rant was the fact that, um, there's this, constant eternal battle between accessibility and usability um which is right. accessibility is everything around like actually accessing a system so security and all like all that stuff and then the actual usability and we will always yes. have this this battle between these two forces um and i i think yeah. that's i think if we if we talk you know if we think about kind of back to our our main theme of our our show is um that's what makes typically I think makes enterprise suck so much less is that constant battle between the accessibility and usability. Well, and sort of bringing your show's themes to a head, one of the other really big themes that you know next year at this time will be even more so is the impact of robotics, right? And and just in general of of, of the automated enterprise. And so the the question becomes: to what extent does that make the enterprise suck less or not? Like. So, for example, if you lose your job to automation, you might wish you had your sucky enterprise job back at that point. <laughs> yep. um, you know, the downside is is this notion of humans being forced into islands of non-programmable work, which is great for those who have exceptional skills or or perhaps you know non-machine-like capabilities around creativity and leadership that are very hard to to simulate at this point, but. Um, you know, on the other hand, you look at that as like, ideally, the impact of robotics and automation is that repetitive, dangerous, dull and difficult work, it's, you know, difficult, like in the sense of like having to climb something or, you know, that type of work gets automated. And then the really talent, the work that requires talent and intellectual thinking and creativity is reserved for humans and everyone's happy and it's like a utopian business environment but it's hard to imagine that it's going to go quite like that well i was going to say that uh, you know the irony is that there are uh, with the first wave of ai um some of the more knowledge functions um maybe easier to 
start um, eating away at uh, then say you know the climbing up a pole or you know folding right. towels perfectly in uh, room service uh, give an example yesterday someone pointed me to um, this i think it's an app called the grid and what it uh, does is you throw a bunch of images and text and videos at it and it comes up with a reasonably good looking website mm. so um Unfortunately, you know, that I don't think they're doing that well because that's been it's been out for about two years. Well, and yeah, what, what I right. think is interesting, but I think is the that, promise is there. Yeah, yeah and so sure. is the average uh, AI that generates a website better than the uh, whatever the average expensive web designer? And right. you know, um, I say that fully, having like done a lot of user experience early in my career, it's hard work. <laughs> but right. um, it seems that some parts of those uh, knowledge jobs, like business analysis, as well. Yeah. Um, might be uh, in that same uh, line of sight that uh, Johnny spoke about with robotics. Well, and think about robo-advisors, right? I mean, that, that to me is a low-hanging yeah. fruit, right? Which is you've got um, individuals who spend most of their time trying to understand the market. And the reality is, um, if you look at the uh, actual, you know, there's a lot of finance um, studies that have done, which is just put your money in an S&P fund and you'll do better than than an uh, investment, you know, wealth manager t- type person. Right. Um, so, and, you know, so the, the promise is that you could have actually a machine do all this, which I think makes sense. So I think, um, John, we just want to kind of finish it all, the, the interview off here. Um, we understand you've got some exclusive content coming out that's right up our alley. And we'd, we, we'd love to maybe share one or, one or two bits, uh, here before, before the end. Uh, and, uh, if, if you'd like. Yeah. So I, I kind of put together this list a while back. It's kind of a long story. It was called, my disruptive enterprise principles and it was i was essentially trying to make front of disruption but for for you guys i called it principles for a less sucky enterprise and <laughs> we ac- we actually covered some of them but i'll just i'll just run through a few of them cuz i think they're interesting uh one is independent advisors are crucial to project success which is a really underestimated one even today that customers should be paying a lot more attention to uh, another is we're in the era of the informed B2B buyer. Market BS to them at your own risk. Yep. So that's how marketing is changing. You can't buy influence. You can only earn it. Media over marketing. The enterprise professionals with the best expert networks win. In other words, don't muzzle your employees. Design thinking is a fundamental change, but only if used prior to key decisions, not as a rubber stamp. And data, and and I'll I'll read you one more, and we can stop for a little bit. Data velocity and volume are usually overrated. Data variety is not. (laughs) If you could only see our heads here, John, where you can you would see them going up and down (laughs) throughout the whole list. Um, There's a few more, but those are a few of the highlights. And then talk about the robots are coming, and a few others that we've covered as well. (laughs) Uh, Well, the data variety stood out uh, stood out for me. Um, There's so many interesting things in what he said, but that um, a lot of the next generation of um, interesting enterprise companies could be around just things that aren't you know business processes that are. Mobile processes, supplanting web processes, yeah. supplanting AS400. Well, we talked about but, the, the new systems of record, yeah. right? It's not just going to be an accounting system of record. It's going to be a like collaboration system of record, right? Well, I think so. And I think, to me, the most interesting scenarios with data always seem to involve things like pulling in geolocational data, pulling in social data, 
it's it's the variety of data that gets really intriguing. Though I did have an asterisk next to that, which is the really hard part, which is it must lead to actionable results, and that's and that's the part that I think enterprises are are really still still struggling with. Um, so the other really interesting thing is is this notion of, and this is a whole other podcast. Come back some other time or have you on mind. We could talk about b- the whole debate around bimodal IT, but this gets right to the heart of your thing around enterprises sucking because some firms like Gardner have proposed this uh, bimodal IT model, which essentially lets you kind of keep with the core stuff and then have this more agile, edgy stuff where cool things are happening. And it's a big debate around whether that actually works or not. So the the big challenge is like change, right? Like, you know, you need to change and evolve, but how do you do it? And, and that I think is what companies are grappling with is how do they create a methodology and a structure for transformation that doesn't, you know, disrupt too much what they're trying to do internally. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think, I think that's been the biggest acceptance probably in the last at least year or two here is that change, change, you have to change. Well, um, well and but bimodal no also yeah. uh, sometimes makes you a little bipolar, right? And <laughs> this whole thing with large company uh, IT. Um, well, my last gig, uh, John, just for record, was uh, the mobile business at HP, and it's crazy trying to see tech companies' own IT departments trying to you know yeah. uh, cope up with all this. Well, I just right. have one um, last question, uh, which kind of relates to uh, your book, Resumes from Hell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that is um, oh, yeah. kind of tying that to bots. Is that do you see bots being useful in HR, and if so, potentially where? In human resources specifically, or broadly human capital? I think uh, more oh, than just oh, the in, function in human capital in general. Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, I. Are you thinking of like perhaps from like a customer service standpoint, or um, I was thinking across the the, the landscape, right? So whether it's uh, you know how talent presents itself to the marketplace, or how companies sort of um, you know set up these uh, slightly more intelligent systems so that um, the talent that wants to work with them doesn't get lost. I mean, you know, Mike and I just prior to this okay, podcast yeah, were talking yeah. about how um, Salesforce, for example, has these you know quote unquote internal referral systems where apparently they have an ATS inter, they have an internal ATS and yeah, an external ATS. Just, yeah. Yeah. So even right. just, I you know, s- everyday scenarios like that, but certainly in the future, getting into things like, Hey, you've got a very talented employee. How do you maybe use bots to present them all the career alternatives that might exist inside the same company? Things like that. Well, in in my opinion, and I don't know of any HR software that does this right now, but it's possible there are some. Uh, I would want to copy from CR, CRM software. The good software tends to have essentially a a lead score based on the caliber of the the prospect, and that lead score vacillates up and down based on actions that take place. Right, um, whether you know someone is. Uh, you know, consume some material on a particular topic or whether they talk with your salesperson. So the score goes up and down based on their propensity to buy. Mm-hmm. Well, what you'd want to do is have an employee morale score, right? That that goes up and down internally based on a series of criteria. And it could be everything from most recently received a promotion to most recently 
were, were trained in some new technology or, or, or perhaps it was tied into some uh, manager review type of thing. And then what would happen is where the bots come in with something like that is essentially trigger you trigger actions when certain scores or thresholds are reached, right? So, so you could essentially have a, a setup where if an employee reached a certain low score assigned to morale, it would trigger some type of action. Um, maybe it would trigger an action to their manager or an HR supervisor saying, hey, maybe you need to check in on this employee and, and, and talk about career direction. A lot of this wouldn't be punitive. It would be more laying the groundwork for a talent roadmap. And when someone deviates from that roadmap, a, a trigger could be activated. But you could also use those triggers, which essentially are a form of bot, uh, to inform that person of certain preferences they defined, right? So if they say, hey, tell me whenever there's a, 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 an opportunity related to uh, – mobile development or whatever, like a training class or whatever it is. And then they get triggered when certain events that meet their interests take place or when certain positions in the organization are open that fit their skills. So I think you could probably automate some of that. And I think the same could be true for almost any internal process. And so it's always the elegance of how do you integrate automation with, uh, with the right human intervention because the, he you know, automation can really backfire if it feels really impersonal, right? So that's always the the thing, you know, like if, you know, if you sent someone something saying like, you know, hey, we, you know, we hear your job's about to end at the end of the month and for whatever reason they didn't know that yet, you know, that's not how they want to find that out. So, yep. so you have to have a whole lot of fail safes in your system. But I think those kinds of automations, if they're done intelligently, can can help. Well, and, and to no surprise, I think we could probably talk about this for the next eight hours uh, yeah, <laughs> between yeah, yeah. the three of us. So I'm, I'm, not, sure kinda, they, I'm yeah. not sure your listeners would be up for that. So. <laughs> Maybe they would. I don't know. <laughs> I think there's a startup there. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, thank you for your time. Uh, this has been great. And I think, uh, I think we do need to have another session at some point. Um, and, and always good to talk to you. We'll give you kind of last, uh, you know, 20, 30 seconds to do if people want to get in contact with you, how do they find out about you? How do they find out about Digenomica? We'll cool. let you take kind of take the stage here. All right. Well, yeah, just sign it. Go check out Digenomica.com and, you know, check out some articles and there's ways you can subscribe to certain things if you want. Um, I'm John ERP on Twitter. That's J-O-N-E-R-P. Um, and then uh, you can also ping me on LinkedIn if you prefer more private discourse and that's it. I enjoyed the talk and I'm sure we'll be doing this again at some point. Excellent. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Later, guys.